Good evening, little masters, and welcome to episode 127 of the Prancing Pony podcast, where tonight, well, we learned that thankfully, Fatty Bulger has not been idle. Well, black riders on the front porch will provide a little bit of motivation. Well, folks, we'll head back to the common room in just a moment. But first, I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with the Man of the West, who would also collapse on the doorstep of the nearest house if it were a mile away, <laughs> Alan Sisto. <laughs> Maybe even a half a mile, Sean, I mean, let's be honest. Still, I, uh, I hope our listeners can make out what I'm babbling about tonight. Man, after three years, even I'm not always sure. But oh, setting oh. that aside, no, no, no. <laughs> setting that aside, I think I, I think I hear something buzzing. Do you hear that? Either I've left the window open, or maybe it's time for another philology fair. Yay! Yay! Well, folks, today, Strider steers the hobbits towards the very unpleasant-sounding Midgewater marshes, where they become lunch for the local insect population. <laughs> the word Midgewater itself is pretty straightforward. It's simply water of midges. I'm sure you probably could figure that out. Yeah. Uh, where midge is a, a broad colloquial term meaning any gnat-like insect, according to Hammond and Skull. Hmm. It encompasses a wide variety of flies and gnats and other similar small insects that are very, very annoying. Uh, yes. but, the, <laughs> but the word's one of my favorites that I personally happen to learn from this book uh, because there's some interesting etymology surrounding that name. First of all, the name Midgewater itself as the name of a body of water was and this is according to Tolkien in the nomenclature, he said it was suggested by Mivaten in Iceland of the same meaning. Now, although I've probably ah. butchered the pronunciation of that, I do know that Mivaten is a volcanic lake in Iceland whose name means the Lake of Midges. Yeah. But it's that word midge itself that I want to get into because it goes all the way back to Old English midge and is cognate with words for annoying insects in many Germanic languages from huh. the Icelandic me, which we just discussed to German Mücke. I think okay. I said that one sort of right. Um, There's an umlaut over a U somewhere in there? That's right, yeah. Then, yeah, yeah, that sounds right to me. Excellent. All right, good. Not that I'm a German expert. We've got people out there who are like absolute experts on all of these things. You've got more German than I do. But I did take, that's true, three years in high school, a couple years in college. I'll take my lead from you on that. The French, I'll, a, I'll take the lead. It was a millennia ago, though. It was a millennium ago. <laughs> yes. It, well, yeah, it was in the previous millennium, wasn't it? That is true. Well, anyway, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, midge is also perhaps ultimately related to a number of forms in other Indo-European languages showing various different extended forms of the same base, such as ancient Greek muia, classical Latin musca, and others in other languages, all meaning fly. Now, if that conjecture is correct that these words are all related, then the word midge would actually share a common etymology with the more familiar to me, word mosquito, which comes oh. to English from oh, Spanish. Oh, musca, yeah. Yeah, mosquito is actually the diminutive form of Spanish mosca, fly, uh, which in turn comes from that Latin word musca. Yep. Ah, fascinating stuff. Yeah. Well, despite the etymological connection and the fact that Tolkien's midges seem to be almost as annoying as mosquitoes, there is a <laughs> difference between the insects that we today call midges and mosquitoes though they're often confused for each other. And I'm not sure we're going to be able to go into much detail on the differences. After all, this is an etymology segment, not an entomology segment. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> oh well done, sir. Oh, well done. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well done. Well, I'm much more comfortable with etymology. <laughs> Thank you very much. Tip your waiter. Try the veal. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I'm much more comfortable with etymology anyway, so let's take it okay. back there for the rest of the segment. Um, Sounds good. All those Indo-European words for flies and mosquitoes all seem to come, again, if this if they have this shared heritage that the, that mm-hmm. the dictionaries think they might, they all would come from a possible Proto-Indo-European root mu, which means fly. And you just wanted the, to say Proto-Indo-European. Always. Because that's I like the always, thing you want to talk about. Proto-Indo-European. Always. It is one of my favorite words to say. <laughs> you know this. Yeah, You've known I do. me for how long? Yep. Oh, yeah. How long has the show been out? I've known you for that plus a week. <laughs> <laughs> That was the weirdest personal ad I ever answered. Seriously. (laughs) Do you like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain? Do you want to co-host a podcast? (laughs) If you have half a brain. Um, Yep. Oh, anyway, I'm so sorry. We digress already. But you know what? You can drop Rupert Holmes into every podcast if you want to. I would always be happy with that. <laughs> okay. I mean, there's only the one song to choose well, from. So, pretty know. much. Pretty much. Talk about your one hit wonder. Yeah. Anyway, so so there's this possible <laughs> Proto-Indo-European root mu, which means fly. And because uh-huh. of the initial M sound mm, mm. that marks mm. the names for these small buzzing insects all across the Indo-European language family, mm-hmm. some philologists think or have speculated that it might have been an onomatopoeic word at first, ah. perhaps imitative of the sound of humming insects, quoth the online etymology dictionary. Now, that is purely a matter of linguistic speculation, but it's speculation by greater linguists than yours truly, so maybe there's something to it. Which is a sizable number of people, really. Oh, that's <laughs> pretty much all of them, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh, my. Now, while on the topic of onomatopoeia, I'll say that five times fast, the topic of onomatopoeia, in this chapter, we will also meet the abominable cricket-like insects Sam calls Nikerbreakers. Now, that name is obviously onomatopoeic from the, you know, Nikerbreak, Breaknik sound that they make. Yeah, yeah, sure. Unceasingly all the night, as he says. So there's not a whole lot to say about it. But the authors of Ring of Words point out something very interesting. The name Nikerbreakers may have been an inspiration to C.S. Lewis, who named one of his characters, a dwarf in Prince Caspian, Nickabrick. That's cool. Now, I'm, I mean, I'm totally not up on my Narnia, because the only dwarf from that series that I can remember is Trumpkin, right? Uh, but yeah, yeah. That's, prob- that's probably an etymology for another day, but when you say dwarf in Narnia, <laughs> maybe, that's all I can think of. But... Maybe an etymology for another presidential administration, too. I'm, I don't want to <laughs> yeah. take that one on right now. <laughs> it's probably for the best. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think we can, uh, we can leave it at that, and I think we can get started, Alan. What do you say? I think we can. Let's see what happens when the Black Riders finally step up their game in the first part of Chapter 11, A Knife in the Dark. All right. I'm going to go ahead and pick up, of course, at the, say it with me, folks, very beginning, because it's (laughs) a very good place to start. Yeah. You know, and I like this because I'm glad you're starting here because I almost did a Meanwhile Elsewhere in Middle Earth segment for this episode, Mm, but I didn't because I figured we'd start right here. So there you go. I think this is a really, there's some telling stuff here I want to talk about. Mm -hmm. So I I really want to make sure we got some of this passage read. I'm going to go ahead and start It's a baked in Meanwhile segment. So It is. There you go. As they prepared for sleep in the inn at Bree, darkness lay on Buckland, a mist strayed in the dells and along the riverbank. The house at Crick Hollow stood silent. Fatty Bulger opened the door cautiously and peered out. A feeling of fear had been growing on him all day, and he was unable to rest or go to bed. There was a brooding threat in the breathless night air. As he stared out into the gloom, a black shadow moved under the trees. The gate seemed to open of its own accord 
and close again without a sound. Terror seized him. He shrank back, and for a moment he stood trembling in the hall. Then he shut and locked the door. The night deepened. There came the soft sound of horses led with stealth along the lane. Outside the gate they stopped, and three black figures entered, like shades of night creeping across the ground. One went to the door, one to the corner of the house on either side, and there they stood, as still as the shadows of stones, while night went slowly on. The house and the quiet trees seemed to be waiting breathlessly. There was a faint stir in the leaves, and a cock crowed far away. The cold hour before dawn was passing. The figure by the door moved. In the dark without moon or stars, a drawn blade gleamed as if a chill light had been unsheathed. There was a blow, soft but heavy, and the door shuddered. Open in the name of Mordor, said a voice, thin and menacing. At a second blow, the door yielded and fell back, with timbers burst and lock broken. The black figures passed swiftly in. Whoa! Well, <laughs> we're off to the races now. Yes, we are. <laughs> and, and once again, Jackson missed out on an awesome moment for a horror movie mm-hmm. director. I know. I mean, there is just so much creeping dread in this Building moment. up to that jump cut, man. That's uh-huh. just... <laughs> yeah. And you know what I love about it is it's just, it's a creeping, stealthy entrance. You know, that's Oh, it is. It's scary in a way that I think a full-scale assault by the Black Riders, you know, I, that it wouldn't have been scary like that. No, you not know? as intensely so. Yeah. 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 I also noted, and, and it was even more obvious as I read it out loud, the amazing alliteration. We have the feeling of fear. Mm. We have the brooding threat in the breathless night air. Mm. We have staring out into the gloom and the gate opened. There's even more of that as we go through. I was completely stunned to kind of feel some of these things go, or even the timbers burst and lock broken, even the, the, the bees there, I think, these these mm-hmm. power words. Yeah. Just yeah. an amazing, amazing yeah. passage in terms of the, the words that were, were used here. They stood as still as the shadows of stones. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's some definite alliteration there. It's kind of like that rhythm, right? Drawing you in mm-hmm. and, and kind of almost like it's it's just drawing your attention to this moment. You're really noticing this moment. You really Cock are. crowed far away. And then, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's a really good catch. Yeah. I like that a lot. I think just the, just the whole scene here, the, 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 way he, mm-hmm. the way he sets this scene is just masterful. It's so oh, creepy. it really is. He even goes into a little bit of parataxis here, doesn't he? With, he does, yeah. You know, the night deepened. One went yeah. to the door, one to the corner. Terror you know, seized him. Yeah. yeah. There, there's a lot of these short sentences that mm-hmm. really amp up the tension. Uh, they're very yeah. visual. They're very just basic and, mm-hmm. and primal in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And then open in the name of Mordor. Can mm. you imagine mm-hmm. that from the point of view of the hobbits at Crick Hollow? <laughs> no, it's practically a fictional place to them. I mean, they right. know it exists, but it's so far away and doesn't affect them. Yeah. Yeah. The name of Mordor. How terrifying must that have been? Yeah, I know. Though it's we know that by that point, there there's nobody there to hear him say that. True. That is true. <laughs> yeah. But to imagine what that must have felt like for anybody oh, yeah. who was there, yeah. Yeah, the idea that... Mordor's come. Yeah, Mordor's, Mordor's here come in the Shire now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Boy, yep. that's a terrifying thought. But like we said, nobody was actually there uh, because right. he, Fatty Bolger, as we said, has not been idle. He had gone off. Yay. Uh, and we start to hear the alarm, the horn call mm-hmm. of Buckland. Yeah, that's right. And There's it had, some history there about this horn call. Yeah, that's right. It had not been heard for, it actually says here, over 100 years, yeah. doesn't it? For 100 years. Not since the white wolves came in the fell winter when the brandywine was frozen over. And yeah, I looked that up. It, it was indeed 107 years ago in uh, third wow. age 2911. Yeah. So, yeah. But 107 years ago. So nobody remembers this sound, th- th- this alarm being triggered in the Shire or in Buckland right. before, I should say. Right. Yeah. The horn call itself would be a a, an, a legendary thing for the average mm-hmm. person. Truly. Yeah. They're not used to hearing this thing. So, no. yeah, it and all that, just kind of shows. There's just, something serious going on. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And it spreads, too. You get the answering horns, the alarm is spreading, and, of course, the riders end up taking off. Yeah, they do. I, I love that line, let the little people blow. Sauron would deal with them later. Oh. It's kind of kind of a creepy moment where you're suddenly it in the is. black rider's point of view. Yeah. 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 Let the little people blow. Sauron would deal with them later. Yeah, that is, that's creepy. It is. So, yeah. So, they've fled. The ring had gone. So, right. their, their business here is done. And, yeah, there's uh, nothing and, left for them in the Shire. They don't. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And as a reminder to our listeners, this is the night of September 29th. Now, mm-hmm. way back when they first crossed the Brandywine River four days prior, Mary right. had said that the riders could get to Crick Hollow that same evening if they weren't stopped at the gate. Oh, yeah. And that yeah. if they were stopped, they could come in the next day. So why is it taking them four days to get here or nearly four days to get here? You know, that's a good question. I think it's something that most people would, would ask when they realize how long it's taken them to, to show up at Crick Hollow. But Hammond and Skull have it covered for us. Uh, they actually took a look at a manuscript in the Marquette archives. And I, I hate tapping into this resource so many times, but it's such a wonderful manuscript that we don't have any place else. So we're going to mm-hmm. reference it a number of times throughout this chapter. Well, and they've included it in the Reader's Companion, right? So Absolutely. They've included yeah. excerpts from the manuscript. Yeah. And we're going to be referencing those. So when we reference the manuscript, it's not as though Sean and I have gone to the manuscript and uh, and taken notes. We are, are <laughs> no, referencing we the excerpts right. as provided by Hammond and Skull. Though, yes, of course, if you all want to send us to Marquette for a month to research the manuscripts, you're more than welcome uh, <laughs> to consider such a project. So <laughs> we will be happy to to take it under advisement. And yes, absolutely. That consider might be working that into our schedule. I don't know, though, what I'm going to be able to encourage my family to do for vacation in Milwaukee. I'm not sure that that's really their sort of town. But yeah, that's I'm okay. Sure if can, I'm at the manu- if I'm at the archives, I don't particularly care. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's plenty of fun stuff for a family to do in Milwaukee. Somebody I'm sure there is. Somebody let us know because we're gonna yeah. need something to entertain. Something the for families our families to do we're while we're studying in a library. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Some point in the future when when we have some sort of uh, yes. credibility, <laughs> credibility. Well, we're done then. That There's kind that of credibility. Gone. We have some credibility, just not that kind of not credibility. Not that kind. No. <laughs> All right. Well, before we lose any of the credibility that we do have, I'm going to go ahead and <laughs> reference that manuscript. So Tolkien explains there that Kamul, who, if you'll remember, was sent by the Witch King to find Hobbiton, because the Witch King himself had set up camp in Andrath and was spending time mm-hmm. in the Barrow Downs, stirring right. up evil with a very big spoon. So, Kamul, but not wearing his ring. <laughs> no, not wearing his ring as we've learned from so many people. Yes, sorry. That's okay. So Kamul had gathered together the other riders who'd been sent into the Shire uh, and he reorganized his forces. Now, Tolkien says 
He left, quote, one to lurk near the bridge and watch it. He sends two along the East Road with orders to report to the Witch King the eastward movement of the ring. He himself with his companion passes secretly into Buckland by the North Gate, and desiring to attract as little notice as possible, he mistakenly, and against Sauron's orders, sacrifices speed to stealth, end quote. I have to say, how would you like to be there for that HR write-up? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> against Sauron's orders? Oh, boy. That's when you're going to see what Sauron means in the employee <laughs> policy when he says up to and including termination. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my uh, yeah. goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Almost well, feel sorry for Kamul on that one. I know. Poor yep. Kamul. Aw, poor little guy. Who's a good ring ring? <laughs> Not you. <laughs> anyway. Oh, man. I, I wonder. I wonder what kind of... <laughs> no, I don't want to wonder. I don't <laughs> anyway. want to know. I don't want to know. No. Well, anyway, the the following day, Tolkien tells us uh, the two that Kamul sent east found the Witch King, who is alarmed and angry at the ring's escape. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah, reasonably so. And also by the fact that the bearer must now certainly know that he is being hunted. If he is a person of power and knowledge, he may find out indeed how to use it and compel a Nazgul to leave him unmolested at the least. But, he is told that Kamul has discovered that the bearer is a very small, spiritless creature with no pride or willpower, and is filled with terror at the approach of a ringwraith. Hmm. That's a bit of an underestimation, I'd yeah. say, wouldn't you? I know. I agree. <laughs> a very small, spiritless creature with no pride or willpower? I mean, I, I, I take offense to that. but uh, Yeah, you, I'm offended on Frodo's behalf. Yeah, of course. But interestingly, the Witch King still doesn't know what to do. Now, he does correctly assume that Frodo is heading to Rivendell, and not to the Grey Havens. Uh, and he even correctly speculates mm -hmm. that he'd, quote, attempt to escape from the Shire at some unexpected point, through the old forest and the downs, and there make cross-country to strike the road beyond Weathertop. So, you know, he's definitely on the right track. Well, unfortunately for Frodo. Yeah, yeah. unfortunately indeed. And we'll see, well, we'll see what happens we'll there. We'll see more soon. on that soon. Now, we'll yeah. be coming back to that manuscript a few times. Uh, I think we come back to it at least once more in this episode. Mm -hmm. uh, but this, of course, we're giving this chapter, as we do every chapter, the full Rancing Pony podcast treatment. Uh, and that means, and, and that means very long, uh, you know, we're breaking this up into multiple episodes. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're taking our time. You're not yep. surprised by that, right, folks? I mean, I don't, I don't think at this point, if they've got, I'm not sure there's going to be a chapter episodes. left that actually gets done in one episode. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really? So probably true. So now we've got uh, bad things happening in Bree and Sean, I'm going to have you pick up there. All right. In the early night, Frodo woke from deep sleep. Suddenly as if some sound or presence had disturbed him. He saw that Strider was sitting alert in his chair. His eyes gleamed in the light of the fire, which had been tended and was burning brightly, but he made no sign or movement. Frodo soon went to sleep again, but his dreams were again troubled with the noise of wind and of galloping hoofs. The wind seemed to be curling round the house and shaking it, and far off he heard a horn blowing wildly. He opened his eyes and heard a cock crowing lustily in the inn-yard. Strider had drawn the curtains and pushed back the shutters with a clang. The first gray light of day was in the room, and a cold air was coming through the open window. As soon as Strider had roused them all, he led the way to their bedrooms. When they saw them, they were glad that they had taken his advice. The windows had been forced open and were swinging, and the curtains were flapping. The beds were tossed about, and the bolsters slashed and flung upon the floor. The brown mat was torn to pieces. 
Oh my. Man. <laughs> this is one of those moments yeah. that <laughs> I, I can't help but think of Peter Jackson's movie with that, that yeah, real yeah. fake out moment that he did. And I'm not mm-hmm. I'm no. not bashing that moment in the movie. I actually thought it was kind of fun because it's I well knew done. Yeah. It, it was. And and I knew the hobbits were gonna be okay. So I, I wasn't upset yeah. at the fake out. I remember people being very mad at that scene. <laughs> it was a masterful fake out. But Yes, it was. For people who never read the books, you're right. Yeah. I can't help thinking of it. Yeah, it was a great visual. Uh, I just have to wonder what a, a cock crowing lustily sounds like. cock a doo baby. <laughs> it's like, like the Barry White of of cocks out there. Yeah. <laughs> no. Cock-a-doodle-doo. I think he just means sort of like energetically, yeah, right? Like passionately, yes, right? I know. But I just had to say that. <laughs> I'm just trying not to say something really inappropriate with that, with that phrase. Yeah. Trying not to trying not to say anything inappropriate is kind of describes me for the whole show. <laughs> I'm just always trying not to say things that will get me in trouble. You know how often I hear the phrase, don't say that, Alan, in my head? A lot. <laughs> Do you really? A lot. You should Do you know how many times voice. I ignore it? Most of the time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh man. Anyway. I then say it, I say it anyway, and then go, What was that? Oh, oh, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't have. Okay. Why did I say that? I shouldn't have Why said that. Why did I say that? <laughs> so the dream mm-hmm. now remember the dream that he had in crick hollow with the tall white tower uh, the desire to see the sea the lightning and thunder and all that mm-hmm. i think last episode we talked about we were looking forward to this dream and i think we talked about it as if it was in tom's house but it was all the way back at crick hollow the night that they got there before they went into the old forest oh yeah yeah originally tolkien had had frodo experience that dream here in Bree. And just as a reminder, I think we touched on this then, but as Christopher Tolkien points out in The Treason of Isengard, the tall white tower of Frodo's dream at Crick Hollow in the final tale remains from what was the precursor to Orthanc, and the thunder that he heard goes back to the interruption of his dream by trotters thrusting back the shutters at the prancing pony. Hmm. There you go. Don't interrupt a hobbit's dream. No, never. Very vivid dreams. Very, very cranky when you wake them up in the middle of the dream. Well, they're hangry, too, because, you know, I mean, they're hobbits. They're always that too, hangry. Because they've been sleeping. Yeah, they haven't right. been eating while they've been they, sleeping. They've gone more than two hours without food, yeah. So they get to their rooms, and, you know, you already described that, of course, the, the forced open windows and all that. Man, what would have happened had they remained? Oh, I, oh I mean, man. It's a story over, I guess, right? Yeah, it would I have mean, been over, right, exactly. Yeah. It would have been victory for Sauron. Yeah. Well, so with that thought out of our minds, what has happened here with the writers? Uh, right. I think we'll need to go back to that manuscript that, that Hammond and Skull talk about in The Reader's Companion. Sure. There we learned that three writers sent by Kamul learned about Frodo's little vanishing act from the hmm. common room mm-hmm. earlier from the Southerner, and they rightly guessed right. that the ring is here. Tolkien tells us that one is sent to the Witch King. He is waylaid by Dunedain and driven away, does not reach the Witch King until the next day. So, uh-huh. hey, good job, Rangers. Huzzah! Yeah, score one for the Rangers. Uh, Now, the two that are left plan their attack on the inn. Now, coincidentally, they attack at about the same time that Crickhollow was attacked. Tolkien says both attacks fail. The two riders in Bree go off in haste to find the Witch King to report that Bearer has gone without waiting for further news. The three from Crickhollow ride down the Buckland Gate and make for Andrath. The Nazgul are thus all assembled at Andrath. The Witch King is exceedingly wroth. Well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would oh. say so. So he comes up with a new the plan. The burden of middle management. I mean, really. That's <laughs> no. 
<laughs> heavy, heavy weighs the crown that sits on no head. <laughs> so, well said. Thank you. So he comes up with a new plan, assuming that Frodo has headed east from Bree. Mm-hmm. He sends four riders cross country straight to Weathertop, while he himself, with the other four, scour all round the borders from Sarn Ford to Bree at speed, but can find out nothing or feel any trace of the ring. They've got like some little radar sensor, you know. Beep, 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 beep. Yeah. Beep, beep. Yeah, got a ring got ringdar. Detector. Ringdar. I was thinking of a big ring detector, like a metal detector, you know, they're kind of yeah, waving they're, it around. Yeah. Would they wave it in the air or at the ground? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Depends on where they think the ring is, I suppose. But Why don't you go ask them, Sean? Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you do that? <laughs> now, we, we know all this to be true, of course, not just because Tolkien told us in the manuscript, but because we get a little bit of it from Gandalf's words at the Council of Elrond. In a few months from now, we're going to be going over this, but we thought it would be worth bringing in now. He says, I do not know, but it seems clear to me that this is what happened. Their captain remained in secret away south of Bree, while two rode ahead through the village, and four more invaded the Shire. But when these were foiled in Bree and at Crickhollow, they returned to the captain with tidings, and so left the road unguarded for a while, except by their spies. The captain then sent some eastward, straight across country, and he himself with the rest rode along the road in great wrath. There you go. So there's your meanwhile with the ring race. Yeah, pretty much. So back to the rooms here. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, let's see. So we've talked about what happened. We've talked about what the hobbits found. And we see Strider go and get Barlaman. Yes. Barlaman comes in and he's got, I think, the greatest reaction (laughs) in the history of reactions. Classic. He says, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he says, he says, never has such a thing happened in my time. And then he says, guests unable to sleep in their beds and good bolsters ruined and all. What are we coming to? Perspective, I, man. Perspective. I, I, well, that's just it. I love it because, you know, it's a subtle bit of this, one of my favorite literary devices. It's called bathos. Mm-hmm. And it's this sudden shift from something that's sublime or important to something that's mm-hmm. trivial or ridiculous, usually for comic effect. Right. You know, uh, Douglas Adams was a master of this. (laughs) Yes, he was. One of my favorite lines from uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And there uh, are many. There are so many. Why are people born? Why do they die? Why do they want to spend so much of the intervening time wearing digital watches? (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's it's that kind of thing where you get these lofty questions and then you just come to something completely ridiculous. Big philosophical, just, you know, meaning of life sort of things. And then what? To something completely silly and and unimportant. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Going back to Tolkien here, you know, in this case, come on, man, the ruined bolsters are not what's important. It's kind of the least of your concerns here. Yeah. Exactly. Right. You've, you know, you've had guests... Basically, their room broken into. <laughs> yeah. They would have been by killed creatures of, been of absolute evil. Yeah. And you don't know where those creatures are. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they could still be around. The ruined yeah. bolsters are, are really kind of an afterthought. You can just go yeah. to, you know, JCPenney's and go get some new bolsters. I mean, make but... an insurance claim if you have to, but man, exactly. Come on. Sure. Just, they're just some pillows. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, mean, I know they're it's long funny. pillows. They're expensive yeah, the, 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 pillows. The, the underneath. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They're not the fancy pillows. They're just like the, big thick ones that you put underneath the real right. pillows, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> They're not even the real pillows. No. But yeah, no, it's just it's just kind of funny the way Barlament, you know, just the way he thinks as a yeah. as an innkeeper, you know, he's thinking of oh man, they ruined these bolsters and I just I love that. It's just fun. <laughs> I got to get me some new bolsters. Yeah, you're right. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, of course, this results in a change in plans, right? I mean, Strider's, yeah, uh, yeah we're not going to be having a nice sit down breakfast. We're going to we're going to eat standing up, probably just an energy bar, or, you know, something like that. Yeah, uh, banana to go <laughs> or something. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, we're going to leave right away. And I'm going to go ahead and pick up right there. Mr. Butterbur hurried off to see that their ponies were got ready and to fetch them a bite. But very soon he came back in dismay. The ponies had vanished. The stable doors had all been opened in the night, and they were gone. Not only Mary's ponies, but every other horse and beast in the place. Frodo was crushed by the news. How could they hope to reach Rivendell on foot, pursued by mounted enemies? They might as well set out for the moon. Strider sat silent for a while, looking at the hobbits, as if he was weighing up their strength and courage. Ponies would not help us to escape horsemen, he said at last, thoughtfully as if he guessed what Frodo had in mind. We should not go much slower on foot, not on the roads that I mean to take. I was going to walk in any case. It is the food and stores that trouble me. We cannot count on getting anything to eat between here and Rivendell, except what we take with us, and we ought to take plenty to spare, for we may be delayed or forced to go round about far out of the direct way. How much are you prepared to carry on your backs? As much as we must, said Pippin with a sinking heart, but trying to show that he was tougher than he looked or felt. I can carry enough for two, said Sam defiantly. <laughs> I love Sam. <laughs> oh, man. That's a cool moment for both of those guys. Yeah. It really is. It's it's an interesting comparison that we'll talk about a little bit. But first, mm -hmm. the ponies are gone, man. They're all gone. All the ponies, all the horses, all the, all beasts, the beasts, everything. Yeah. yeah. They are all yeah. gone. No wonder Frodo despairs a little bit. Yeah. And we've got nine yeah. mounted riders on very fast horses, and we're on foot. Yeah. I mean, he's understandably, he's just kind of freaking out. I mean, this isn't like, mm -hmm. you know, this isn't like depths of despair. Oh, no, no. what are we going to do? It's just like, <laughs> like, they might as well set out for the moon. That's kind of how you'd be feeling right now. You'd be, this is impossible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's frustrated. He's scared. And uh, Strider, man, the, the, the wisdom that he brings to yeah. this, the, the wisdom yeah. and the perspective, you know, Look, we would not have been able to escape them on ponies anyway. No. So the, the Your only ponies issue just aren't here fast is, enough, right? Right. The issue is the food in the stores. So, yeah. um, so there's still an issue there. But he does kind of bring a little bit of perspective that seems to seems to help yeah. there. I think it really cool. does. And and he's right. It's not like they're going to ride along the road. They've got right. to know that that's not an option for them. They must. I mean, they they've been not doing that since the beginning. Really true. You know, they've been, they've been staying true. off the road since the beginning. That very slight bit of the road from uh, from when they said goodbye to Tom until they got into Bree, but that mm -hmm. you know was probably measured in less than a mile. It was a, yeah, a very it was probably short the only segment. way to approach the town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we get a, a little example of two kinds of Hobbit toughness, right? We get mm. Pippin's sinking heart. Yeah, but he's trying to to put on a good show. He's trying to put on a good face. He's willing to do what needs to be done. He's not happy about it, but he recognizes no. that it needs to be done, and and I yeah. like that. Yeah. But it's but different Sam, than Sam, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Sam just Sam's leaps right, on, right to it. Yeah. I'll carry I'll carry twice as much yeah. as anybody else, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, both are really exceeding expectations as far as I'm concerned. But, well, yeah. But yeah carrying Sam. anything is exceeding expectations, <laughs> if you be honest. Yeah. Yeah. But it's cool. You're right. Hobbit toughness. I like that. Yeah. Uh, Hobbit like toughness that is something that we see that their resilience, we see their, their stick-to-itiveness. They're going to see the job done. Yep. 
Now, I know we didn't read the next part, but that's where we learned that, you know, Frodo's got an idea. Can't we just go buy a pony in town? I, I heard the local Chevy dealer has some great deals. Uh, you know, maybe we should just go buy a pony that gets 0% interest for five years. Crazy Fernie is uh, is financing everybody. Come on down to Cal Worthington. <laughs> Have you ever seen, you, you used to live out here in Southern California. You remember Cal Worthington and his dog spot? I you know, I did live Those there. Those ads like, like in the 70s and 80s. I mean, they were terrible. I didn't live out there then. So. And his dog spot was always some other animal. I mean, like a, a circus tiger or an elephant or some crazy thing. My wife and I were just watching local TV last night and there was a, a like a car dealer came on and he was dressed as a pickle. And my wife turned to me and she <laughs> said, do, do car dealer guys still do this? They put on still put on goofy stuff to get your attention. I said, well, apparently they do. Babe. Yeah. Go see Cal. Don't you remember Go See Cal? Anyway, so yeah, so Frodo's like, can't we go just buy a certified pre-owned pony? Barnum's response, of course, is that uh, it's probably not. I mean, all of them were here, but I'll send Bob out and see what we can find. Sure, yeah. In the meantime, Strider thinks that this was part of the writer's plan. Mm-hmm. That they're yeah, trying to keep them to, away from, yeah. keep them from sneaking away easily. Yeah, I mean. Uh, absolutely. I mean, if this is a chess game, the writers have the initiative, don't they? It's yeah, like, they do. You know, Strider and the Hobbits are, they're reacting. They're, they're having to, the exactly. They're having to mm-hmm. react. They can't be proactive mm-hmm. here. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're being kept kind of on their, on their back foot, so to speak. Yeah. Right. So, and then, you know, we talked about Pippin's toughness and Sam's toughness and Frodo's attempt to find a solution here with the horses. What's Mary's involvement? Well, at least there's time Just for hunger. full breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Oh yeah. man. I, I, I identify with Mary. Let's have breakfast. Oh, totally. Wait. <laughs> A crumb of comfort. More than a crumb, I hope. That's very well done, Mary. Some nice wordplay there. That is some nice wordplay. I like that a lot. But I'm going to have you pick up the next little bit about them getting a horse. My kingdom for a horse. (laughs) If only Aragorn had gone door to door and said, (laughs) a horse? A horse? My kingdom for a horse. Well, he doesn't have a kingdom yet, but yeah. No, that's true. But that's why it's easy to bargain with. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Anyway, indeed. Go ahead. In the end, there was more than three hours' delay. Bob came back with the report that no horse or pony was to be got for love or money in the neighborhood, except one. Bill Fernie had one that he might possibly sell. A poor old half-starved creature it is, said Bob, but he won't part with it for less than thrice its worth, seeing how you're placed, not if I knows Bill Fernie. Bill Fernie, said Frodo. Isn't there some trick? Wouldn't the beast bolt back to him with all our stuff? Or help in tracking us or something? I wonder, said Strider. But I cannot imagine any animal running home to him once it got away. I fancy this is only an afterthought of kind Master Fernie's, just a way of increasing his profits from the affair. The chief danger is that the poor beast is probably at death's door. But there does not seem any choice. What does he want for it? Bill Fernie's price was twelve silver pennies, and that was indeed at least three times the pony's value in those parts. It proved to be a bony, underfed, and dispirited animal, but it did not look like dying just yet. Not just yet. (laughs) It's a great little passage. Yeah. I like Frodo's concern, though, that there might be like some sort of GPS tracker or homing device, you know. Well, he's, that's a good practical, I mean, he knows Bill Fernie is, you know, he's in league with the riders, and so, yeah, Yeah. he's, but (laughs) he's clearly overestimating him because yeah, Strider says right away, he's like, right. dude, you don't know how bad Bill Fernie treats his yeah. horses, I'm sure. Nobody wants to go back to him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bony, underfed, and dispirited. Mm-hmm. That is, Poor that thing. is a, I know, your heart goes out to him. 
it did not look like dying just yet. And that's a yeah. really cool thing because it says Isn't that this it? pony has, you know, has hope. It, it has hope. Yeah. You wouldn't think yeah. of a pony having, <laughs> having hope. It's equine but, hope, but it's still hope. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It is. It's downtrodden, but it's not giving up. Oh, yeah. It's not despairing. It's not, it's not done yet. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> I, <laughs> I feel, feel better. <laughs> but it's just like our heroes, isn't it? I mean, it's yeah. it's suffered a bit, but yeah. uh, it's still still got some life in it. Knock me down, and I get up again. And never gonna. You're never gonna keep <laughs> me down. <laughs> uh, I'm, I, wow. no, I don't want to get that song stuck in my head for the next hour. And a half. <laughs> it's too late. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. We apologize to everyone listening. Everybody. Before you get into the 12 silver pennies, I know you've got some stuff on that. Yes. I just, I noticed something, uh, Aragorn talking, uh, I'm sorry, Strider, uh, talking about this is a way of increasing his profits from the affair. Yes. That's a, a reminder that this is not Fernie profiting. This is him increasing his profits. Increasing, his profits. that's right. He's already sold information about Frodo to the Black Riders. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, he's just he's just trying to milk it for all it's worth. Absolutely. And 12 silver pennies is definitely quite a bit of milk in it there. Yeah. Uh, that it's three times the pony's value. Though you have to wonder, why didn't he ask for five times the pony's value? I guess he knew he probably wouldn't get it. Probably so. Yeah. He knew that he could at least squeeze Barlamin or Frodo or Strider for 12 silver pennies, which is quite a bit, apparently. Uh, though mm-hmm. we're not going to get into all those details. I actually don't have anything. I know you mentioned, oh, you have something on 12 silver pennies. I don't. Uh, what I will do instead is refer our listeners to episodes 85 and 99. Those were two episodes in which we talked uh, in Barnum's bag about right, yeah. kind of the idea of economics and what this might mean for Bilbo's wealth. You know, we talked about how much treasure he brought back. And one of our listeners talked about the value of a horse. And we that's did right. some complicated mathematics and got it all wrong. And then uh, <laughs> that's what we so do. When another we do listener math. piped in and gave us his opinions and thoughts and kind of compared it to the yeah. Victorian era in terms mm-hmm. of, of wages and how much, you know, things were worth. So it was an interesting, uh, interesting set of discussions. So seriously, if you want to dig deeper into the economics, take a look at the mailbag in episodes 85 and 99. There you go. But in the meantime, I'm going to pick up exactly where you left off and kind of finish that bit of the story. Mr. Butterbur paid for it himself and offered Mary another 18 pence as some compensation for the lost animals. He was an honest man and well off as things were reckoned in Bree, but 30 silver pennies was a sore blow to him, and being cheated by Bill Fernie made it harder to bear. As a matter of fact, he came out on the right side in the end. It turned out later that only one horse had been actually stolen. The others had been driven off or had bolted in terror and were found wandering in different corners of the Breeland. Mary's ponies had escaped altogether, and eventually, having a good deal of sense, they made their way to the Downs in search of Fatty Lumpkin. So they came under the care of Tom Bombadil for a while and were well off. But when news of the events at Bree came to Tom's ears, he sent them to Mr. Butterbur, who thus got five good beasts at a very fair price. They had to work harder in Bree, but Bob treated them well. So on the whole, they were lucky. They missed a dark and dangerous journey. But they never came to Rivendell. Very cool. That last line speaks volumes. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It, 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 for the reader who is not, who this is the first time they've ever encountered Tolkien's works. You know, they never read The Hobbit. And so they're, they're picking up The Lord of the Rings and they're reading this. And they've read a little bit about Rivendell, uh, you know, and, and Elrond and all this. But this really is the first kind of tantalizing taste of what an amazing place this must be. Yeah. 
yeah, it must have been pony heaven, you know. I mean, they they would have yeah. been they would have been <laughs> yeah. very happy there. Yeah, lots of grass, you know, yeah. places to yeah. stretch their legs. Yeah, it's also a nice little foreshadowing of the dark and dangerous journey that that the hobbits are going to go on, isn't it? Agreed. Yeah, there's really there's a is. lot of there's a lot of lot in this little fast forward, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. I agree, and I like the detail about Butterbur being an honest man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Really cool. And, and pretty know, well off, too. He's doing all right, but yeah. 30, 30 silver pennies is a lot of money for him. Yeah, it is. Well, if if three pennies was the right price, or wait, no, I'm sorry, the right price four, would have been yeah, four pennies because four 12 pennies, is three times. Four so pennies, four for, pennies. A, for a sick, broken down pony. Right. You know? So here he's buying seven and a half horses, basically. That's a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, if I'm buying seven and a half even broken down cars, that's a chunk of change. <laughs> that's you know? quite a bit of money, yeah. Even a beater is like five grand. So, you know, you're looking yeah. at thirty-five, forty thousand dollars $40,000. You're talking about a, a pretty significant chunk of change, uh, even yeah. for a well-off man like like Mr. Butterbur. And then that's where we get back into the conversation we had back in 85. Where we talked <laughs> <Yeah>. about <laughs> comparing a broken down uh, pony to a car. Yeah. To a, an old pickup truck that, you know, maybe 150,000 miles on it or something. And we, and we do get an interesting, an, an interesting range of what the fair price for a pony is in breed, don't we? Because we see we that, do. that four pence would have been about right for a broken down pony. Mm-hmm. And we know mm-hmm. that Butterbur got five ponies for 30 pence after it was all said and done. And that was a very fair price. So I guess six pence is a fair price for a good pony. Yeah. yeah Four is about true. top value for a sick one. So yeah, then now you know that's the Kelly Blue Book value on ponies in Bree. <laughs> so a certified pre owned pony pennies. might be six, whereas a right. beater might be three or four. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And if you get it from the guy dressed as the pickle, you know, there don't you pay more than three and a half. Yeah. And we do our own financing, so we don't worry about how bad your credit is. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness well we didn't read the next little bit but that's where we get the reaction of the guests of course they're all upset uh what, what do you mean our animals are gone uh the southerners had lost a bunch of horses they blamed mm-hmm. barleman but then you get butterbur saying if you pick up with a horse thief and bring it to my house you ought to pay for the damage he was your friend man he came oh, in with you minute. guys wait a minute when did he come into our group i don't even and remember yeah. this guy isn't that crazy because uh-huh. i mean he just slipped in unnoticed to this party. I mean, it's probably yeah. a large group of travelers from the South, probably sure. just a, a big group of people. This isn't a small, no, closely knit party. It's probably a, a big group. And he just mm-hmm. slipped in and <laughs> everybody just realized, assumed that yeah. he must have been connected with somebody yeah. else in the group, you know? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And it remember is. that what he actually was, remember that he was a Dunlending mm-hmm. who'd been yeah. uh, overtaken by the Black Riders near the Tharbad Crossing. Right. He saved his life by betraying Saruman to the Witch King. Boy, talk about being between able... a rock and a hard place. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? Wow, man. Yeah. And then he ended up giving the name of Baggins to the Witch King, and he had oh. that shadow of fear put upon him before being sent to Bree. So, yeah. Yeah, and that, and that was all in uh, Hunt for the Ring in Unfinished right. Tales. Right, right. I loved how I think uh, shadow of fear was even capitalized. Like, it's I, yeah, a special I think you're right. power yeah. of the yeah. Witch King, yeah. Yeah. It's great stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, he's uh, he's definitely... Suspect number one here. Yep. So we're going to go ahead and move on. We're going to get them out of Bree. And to that end, I'm going to have you read the next little bit. Okay. After their breakfast, the hobbits had to repack and get together further supplies for the longer journey they were now expecting. It was close on 10 o'clock before they at last got off. By that time, the whole of Bree was buzzing with excitement. Frodo's vanishing trick, 
the appearance of the black horseman, the robbing of the stables, and not least the news that Strider the ranger had joined the mysterious hobbits, made such a tale as would last for many uneventful years. Most of the inhabitants of Bree and Staddle, and many even from Coombe and Archet, were crowded in the road to see the travelers start. The other guests in the inn were at the doors or hanging out of the windows. Strider had changed his mind and had decided to leave Bree by the main road. Any attempt to set off across country at once would only make matters worse. Half the inhabitants would follow them to see what they were up to and to prevent them from trespassing. They said farewell to Nob and Bob and took leave of Mr. Butterbur with many thanks. I hope we shall meet again some day when things are merry once more, said Frodo. I should like nothing better than to stay in your house in peace for a while. They tramped off, anxious and downhearted, under the eyes of the crowd. Not all the faces were friendly, nor all the words that were shouted. But Strider seemed to be held in awe by most of the Brelanders, and those that he stared at shut their mouths and drew away. <laughs> well, that's the uh, plus two charisma to his intimidation role. <laughs> you know, <I> mean, that's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Natural 20. Oh. Yep. No, they don't want any part of him. No, no. They'll make fun of him as long as he's not actually paying attention to them. <laughs> right. The minute he looks <laughs> at them. It says a lot about them and him. It does. They're so cowardly. Yeah. Everybody's, uh, you know, posting their pictures of the group on Instagram. Hey, look who oh, I'm yeah. following, you know. Oh, these are like Bilbo Baggins levels of buzz, aren't they? I mean. Oh, yeah. This is big yeah. stuff. I mean, people yeah. are coming from the other towns, the neighboring villages to, to yeah, see them good point. head yeah. out. People yeah, are right. hanging out the windows at the hotel and, and houses. I mean, this is wild. Yeah. Hey, look, is... it's uh, that crazy ranger guy and those hobbits. <laughs> right, that guy disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Crazy, crazy stuff. It's a big thing. I really do love Frodo's farewell to Barnum. It's, it's a class act. Mm -hmm. I would like nothing better than to stay in your house in peace for a while. Yeah. I'm sure the unspoken part is and not have my room broken into and the bolster slashed and, you know, have myself killed. Well, uh, but, to be fair, know, that wasn't Barlaman's fault, was it? I mean, no, no, you know, it wasn't. They were, but, <laughs> that's not but something I, I, you'd leave in a Yelp review. <laughs> no. Stayed there. The room was broken into. The bolsters were slashed. I don't know. I, you might post that and say terrible security. The innkeeper didn't even care about my safety. All he cared about was no. the bolsters. I should also mention, by the way, that when I came back to my room after dinner, there was a stranger in it. Right. <laughs> don't know what how he got about? the key. How did that happen? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the Yelp reviews, I'm afraid they might go down to four stars after this, but... Yeah. But, I mean, Frodo is the lightning rod bringing all that trouble oh, yeah. onto the place. Yeah, he so. really is. <laughs> and he knows it. He does. He does. Good stuff, though. Uh, and then, of course, we get the gift from Nob and Bob in the, in the little bit there that we're not reading. But we talked about that recently in the idea about whether Bob is a hobbit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that he's sort of a unit with Nob. They're only seen right. together. Are they're only they're they're primarily mentioned together, I should say. They're not only right. seen together. Nob is seen without Bob a few times. But mm -hmm. yeah, they're they're always mentioned as a unit and there there does seem to be some camaraderie between yeah. Nob and Bob and Sam. And again, I think that's because they're all Hobbit servants. You know, Hobbit there's, servants. A, there's a little bit of a kinship yeah. there. I agree. I agree. Apples for walking and a pipe for sitting, Sam said. That's a great set of gifts right there, I think. Yeah. I'm gonna go ahead and pick up right there and we're gonna see them as they depart the town. All right. The hobbits took no notice of the inquisitive heads that peeped out of doors or popped over walls and fences as they passed. But as they drew near to the further gate, Frodo saw a dark, ill-kept house behind a thick hedge, the last house in the village. In one of the windows, he caught a glimpse of a sallow face with sly, slanting eyes, but it vanished at once. So that's where that southerner is hiding, he thought. He looks more than half like a goblin. 
Over the hedge, another man was staring boldly. He had heavy black brows and dark, scornful eyes. His large mouth curled in a sneer. He was smoking a short black pipe. As they approached, he took it out of his mouth and spat. Morning, Long Shanks, he said. Off early. Found some friends at last. Strider nodded, but did not answer. Morning, my little friends, he said to the others. I suppose you know who you've taken up with. That stick it not Strider, that is. Though I've heard other names not so pretty. Watch out tonight. And you, Sammy, don't go ill-treat my poor old pony. Pah, he spat again. Sam turned quickly. And you, Fernie, he said, put your ugly face out of sight or it'll get hurt. With a sudden flick, quick as lightning, an apple left his hand and hit Bill square on the nose. He ducked too late, and curses came from behind the hedge. Waste of a good apple, said Sam regretfully, and strode on. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Sam's got Go his priorities Sam. in place. I love that. He sure does. Man, I just wasted a good apple. Dang it. Yeah. What'd I go and do that for? Yeah. Well, while we're while we're on the topic of Sam's apple tossing, I'm I'm reminded of the the bit from the prologue about how how good the hobbits were with uh with throwing things, weren't they? Uh-huh. It says in the Stoop prologue. For a stone. They, yeah, it says in the prologue, they shot well with the bow, for they were keen-eyed and sure at the mark, mm-hmm. not only with bows and arrows. If any hobbit stooped for a stone, it was well to get quickly under cover, as all trespassing beasts knew very well. Yep, absolutely. Yep, and Bill Fernie knows that well now, too. <laughs> yes, he does. Yeah, and you know, stoop for a stone is actually a racial trait in Lord of the Rings Online for hobbits. Uh, it, it's oh, well. relatively useless. It's very low damage. But there's actually, if I remember correctly, there's a, a slight chance to stun uh, the enemy. So, I mean, it's if you don't have anything else handy, stoop for a stone. <laughs> That's that's kind of awesome. You know, honestly, yeah. I, I it's been so many years since I played EverQuest, but I, I think there was a throw oh. stone skill in that too. Although I don't know if it was specific to halflings or not, so I, oh, okay. it might not might not be relevant here. But I kind of feel like yeah. it might have been something similar. You know, it's just like you, I'm sure. you just if you don't have any other weapon, you just pick up a, th- a stone and you pick do maybe up a rock like and one or two, two damage, damage right? Yeah, yeah. That's funny. That's... that's great that it's Hobbit specific in Lotro. Makes oh yeah, sense. absolutely. A little racial trait there. So they get to the south end of town, and clearly there's no HOA here. <laughs> I mean, no, got this no, they're not taking care of the yards house. at all. No, yeah, no. no. The they weeds are old, growing old up. There's anthills all over. Yeah. Sitting in the front yard on cinder blocks. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. So, not good yeah. stuff. No. But what does he see in the window? Frodo notices that southerner, the, uh, the squint-eyed southerner. Right. This observation that he looks more than half like a goblin, you know, that foreshadows a fact that we'll learn later on, that Saruman is actually breeding orcs and men together. In Book 3, Chapter 4, uh, Treebeard is speculating on why Saruman's orcs can endure the sunlight, because usually orcs yeah, can't that's do right. that. And right. Treebeard says, I'm not going to do the Treebeard voice, I'm sorry, because we'll be here that's all night. Okay. <laughs> he says, I wonder what he has done. Are they men he has ruined, or has he blended the races of orcs and men? Oh. Yeah. Well, you know, we don't know for sure that the Southerner actually is a half-orc, but Tolkien True. tells us in no uncertain terms that Saruman did, in fact, interbreed them, and that Morgoth had done it long before in the First Age. In Myths Transformed, which is in Morgoth's Ring, Tolkien mm-hmm. says Saruman bred, quote, both men-orcs, large and cunning, and orc men, treacherous and vile. Yeah, so it's like orcs with mannish traits and yeah, men with orcish, and orcish traits. traits. And- 
Yeah, and this guy, I mean, he, you're right. We don't know for sure that he actually is one, but he certainly could be with, you know, with this description. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we know he's a Dunlending, but right. we don't know that he's, you know, a, a, a that he's manish actually got some or an Orcish man. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we get Fernie's wonderful comment about Strider, stick it, not Strider. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is so petty, man. I, oh, it is. It's yeah. just petty name calling. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to just briefly mention that long shanks, of course, means long legs, which oddly, Fernie seems to mean as an insult. Kind of interesting. Yeah. Aragorn is quite tall, being descended from the men of Numenor as opposed to Fernie. And, you know, it's funny in our culture, tall people aren't made fun of by short people. It's the other way around, isn't it? I mean, you and I are both of average height. You know, I'm 5'9", oh. you're a little less than that. I'm five six. Yeah, I okay, wouldn't so even go so far as to short, say I'm of right. average height. Yeah. Five nine, five nine and a half. So I'm I'm almost average height. But yeah, five six is short. So you probably didn't get to make fun of tall people. It was probably the other way around, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting that you, no, it's totally true. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. I did get made fun of. <laughs> Had to get but, that in uh, there. Yeah, yeah, of course. So now that we've gotten it clear that you were made fun of for your height, I just want to point out that. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for bringing it all back to me. I really appreciate that. Thanks for the recollections, man. I really appreciate them. Yeah, man. I think this is a way, uh, you know, because like we said, tall people normally aren't made fun of. Short people are. Here, though, it's the other way around because it's Fernie's way of pointing out Aragorn's status as an outsider. Remember, the men of Bree are shorter, yeah. stockier. That's right. They're broad and rather short. Exactly. Yeah, we saw that at the beginning and of at the sign of the Prince of Aragorn's yeah. certainly not that. He is, he is tall and... As such, he's an outsider, and I think that's what Fernie's trying to point out here. Yeah, I think so. Uh, the other thing it makes me think of, and this is something that anybody who's seen the movie Braveheart should know, mm-hmm. uh, historically, Longshanks was the nickname of King uh, Edward I yes, of England. Yes, yes who ruled from 1272 to 1307. He was very tall for his time, six foot two. Oh, man, back then that would be really tall. Uh, yeah, like, that's like 6'10 so. today or something like that. I imagine so, yeah. really. He'd certainly be making fun of us, not the other way around. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so there's a there's a historical precedent for that name. I don't think Tolkien's really trying to draw any connection well, no, there, but no. it's it's definitely a name that appeared in, you know, in uh, in the Middle Ages. Yeah. A king being called Longshanks. Yeah. And here we have a king That's being true. called yeah, Longshanks. That's true. Yeah, also a king. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. So the journey to Rivendell begins, and I actually have a fairly lengthy passage that I want you to read here, if you wouldn't mind. Okay. I will do that. But it's some good, there's some good landscape descriptions here. I really want folks to listen in carefully. It's some good stuff. No pressure. No pressure at all, Sean. You know that. No. We're 127 episodes in. If there's pressure, we're doomed. (laughs) There's no pressure. (laughs) Totally fine. I I do love this moment. I'm glad you gave me this one. After the road had run down some way and had left Bree Hill standing tall and brown behind, they came on a narrow track that led off towards the north. This is where we leave the open and take to cover, said Strider. Not a shortcut, I hope, said Pippin. Our last shortcut through woods nearly ended in disaster. Ah, but you had not got me with you then, laughed Strider. My cuts, short or long, don't go wrong. He took a look up and down the road. No one was in sight, and he led the way quickly down towards the wooded valley. His plan, as far as they could understand it without knowing the country, was to go towards Archit at first, but to bear right and pass it on the east and then to steer as straight as he could over the wild lands to Weathertop Hill. And that way they would, if all went well, cut off a great loop of the road, which further on bent southwards to avoid the Midgewater marshes. But of course they would have to pass through the marshes themselves, and Strider's description of them was not encouraging. 
However, in the meanwhile, walking was not unpleasant. Indeed, if it had not been for the disturbing events of the night before, they would have enjoyed this part of the journey better than any up to that time. The sun was shining, clear but not too hot. The woods in the valley were still leafy and full of color, and seemed peaceful and wholesome. Strider guided them confidently among the many crossing paths. Although left to themselves, they would soon have been at a loss. He was taking a wandering course with many turns and doublings to put off any pursuit. Bill Fernie will have watched where we left the road for certain, he said, though I don't think he will follow us himself. He knows the land round here well enough, but he knows he is not a match for me in a wood. It is what he may tell others that I am afraid of. I don't suppose they are far away. If they think we have made for Archit, so much the better. Well, and of course, they think we made for Archit because there's a KOA campground there, I think. But <laughs> Yeah, you know. Uh, the bathrooms are clean. Right, exactly. Spacious. It's not yeah. much to, to, you know, it's not a great place, but it, it gets the job done. Gets the job done. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so, of course, you know, Strider's plan, get off the road. Get off the road! Get off the road! So, but his cuts don't go wrong, and I like that. We're not, you're not going <laughs> to get lost like, if I'm with you. Yeah. I've got the Ranger power, kid. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But unfortunately, yeah. the itinerary includes <laughs> the, Midgewater, the Marshes, Midgewater Marshes, which if the name doesn't like tell you a little something, the narrator tells you that uh, if they had followed the road, it bends southward to avoid the Midgewater Marshes. It is mm -hmm. a place to avoid. Uh, so it that is, would be the point. <laughs> right. Exactly. The, There's a reason the, the road doesn't who, go through it. who designed and laid the road specifically avoided this said, place. You don't want to go here. Because you don't want to. So, and right. we don't want to build a road here. No. No. Right. Uh, but right. Uh, there's some great landscape descriptions but here, isn't there? It It is a really, it's an enjoyable walk. Yeah. And I love this little bit of, you know, we still get some of that pastoral mm -hmm. kind of, uh, you know, that Arcadia, right? Yes. That beautiful landscape description. The leafy still woods see a bit of in that the valley here. full of yeah. color, peaceful, wholesome. And, mm. and these are places they would not have had access to without Strider's no. guidance and his ability to find these paths. You're absolutely That's really right. cool. Yeah. I thought this told us a lot too, and it says that they would have enjoyed this part of the journey better than any up to that time. Yeah. If, if it hadn't been for what had happened last night. <laughs> right. I mean, that, that really does say something about how enjoyable this part of the journey, this walk is today. Yeah. And, and I can't help but think that, you know, part of it is just the beauty of the landscape and the fact that it is, mm -hmm. it's a place that they've never seen before, mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of the places that they'd been, they hadn't seen before, but they sure. were places that were still close to the Shire. Right. You got to imagine that the landscape looks very similar to the Shire. And well, now yeah. they're getting into some, some very different country. Mm -hmm. And maybe they're also enjoying it just because they feel a little bit safer yeah. around Strider. Yeah. I don't know. And it's just lovely. There. I mean, you know, you're, you're thinking fall colors here. Yeah. What was this? September 29th, I think we said. Uh, no, September 29th was, it was, it was, yeah, it was the morning of September 30th. They left, I believe. Right, right, right. Yeah. So yeah, this is the 30th. Yeah. The 29th was yesterday. Yeah. Perfect time of year to see the fall colors. Yeah. But Strider reminds them, you know, the riders can't be far. No. They, the mysterious they can't be far away. Yeah. And we definitely want them thinking we went someplace else. Mm-hmm. So speaking of someplace else and someplace the writers might not think to look for them because who wants to go? Even the writers don't who want to wants go to the Bridgewater Marshes. <laughs> uh, that's where I'm going to go ahead and pick up uh, and read, or read quite a bit here. At first, they made fair progress. They're, they're in the marshes now, by the way. I, I'm picking up in the middle of a paragraph because I can't read everything. Mm -hmm. At first, they made fair progress. But as they went on, their passage became slower and more dangerous. The marshes were bewildering and treacherous and there was no permanent trail even for rangers to find through their shifting quagmires. The flies began to torment them, 
and the air was full of clouds of tiny midges that crept up their sleeves and breeches and into their hair. I'm being eaten alive, cried Pippin. Midge water? There are more midges than water. What do they live on when they can't get hobbit? asked Sam, scratching his neck. <laughs> they spent a miserable day in this lonely and unpleasant country. By the way, I had to try to not sound at all like the film. Because that's yeah. one of the lines. I think well, Mary and, has. And they gave that Mary line. that line yeah. in the film. Yeah. yeah. But I did love it. It's That's always been one of my favorite lines. It is. It's a great line in it's the book. It's another one of those really dry humor moments. It really is. It's sort of a almost a bathos moment. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah. We're being chased by black riders and your biggest problem is you're getting is bitten you're getting by gnats. eaten by midges. Yeah. 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 So back to the text. They spent a miserable day in this lonely and unpleasant country. Their camping place was damp, cold, and uncomfortable and the biting insects would not let them sleep. There were also abominable creatures haunting the reeds and tussocks that from the sound of them were evil relatives of the cricket. There were thousands of them, and they squeaked all round. Nick, 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 nick. Unceasingly all the night, until the hobbits were nearly frantic. The next day, the fourth, was a little better, and the night almost as comfortless. Though the Neeker-Breakers, as Sam called them, had been left behind, the midges still pursued them. I love, I love Sam's etymology. <laughs> oh, I'm just going to call the them Neeker-Breakers. Neeker yeah. As Frodo lay, tired but unable to close his eyes, it seemed to him that far away there came a light in the eastern sky. It flashed and faded many times. It was not the dawn, for that was still some hours off. What is the light? he said to Strider, who had risen and was standing gazing ahead into the night. I do not know, Strider answered. It is too distant to make out. It is like lightning that leaps up from the hilltops. Frodo lay down again, but for a long while he could still see the white flashes, and against them the tall, dark figure of Strider, standing silent and watchful. At last he passed into uneasy sleep. That's a memorable leg of the journey, isn't it? It is. It is. Between the insects eating you alive and mm, <laughs> creepy lights on, on the hill. I yeah. can't help but it's like I'm imagining, I'm feeling them. Like there's little, I've got feelings on my back and my arms and I'm thinking it oh, must yeah. be bugs, but it's not. You could just imagine. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so if you've creepy. spent any time in swampy, boggy terrain, mm -hmm. as I have being from Louisiana. That's true. Yeah. You can just feel like. Oh, you just feel this humidity mm -hmm. and it's this oppressive, yeah. constant buzzing of insects and just, oh yeah, just everything. You're just itchy everywhere. Oh. You can totally feel this. No matter how much insect repellent you spray. And of course they don't have any insect repellent. Right. <laughs> Their insect right. repellent is, well, fire maybe. I mean, I don't know. You would think they, one of them would think to light up a pipe or something. Yeah. Maybe part you know, of it though is I'm also sure trying to, keep away. to stay. Uh, to, to stay stealthy. Yeah. yeah you don't want. You don't want a big stream of smoke puffing out. The writers are like, well, I think they're over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Follow it looks like a train. Exactly. Yeah. I, I noticed earlier, though, that there's no permanent trail through the marshes. This place is really a dangerous place. Yeah. It kind of foreshadows the, uh, the yeah. dead marshes in a way in that regard, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. definitely. I mean, a much it, smaller yeah. scale, no, nowhere near the evil. This is just sure. a natural thing and not some sort of supernatural but the idea although of, that doesn't stop talking from using some wonderfully hyperbolic language oh, yeah. you know evil relatives of the cricket and that's just the neeker breakers not even I love the midges. That. they're just big crickets you know, yeah abominable creatures haunting the reeds and tussocks there is kind of a <laughs> yeah you're there, right there is you're right kind of an irony there there is definitely 
And, and poor guys, these sneaker breakers are just going all night long. Again, if you've oh, if you've ever spent heard. any time out camping any place where there's crickets, or, or if something, you've ever had a just, cricket in your house or that you can't find, oh, oh yeah, that drives me nuts. Yeah, and of course, if there are thousands of them, it's constant. It's a symphony of yeah. discomfort. It's like surround sound cricket. Freak. No wonder. I mean, <laughs> just, just keep going. I can't sleep. I might as well walk, even if I. <laughs> I mean, really, get me out of yeah. here. And then we get the uh, the flashes, though. This is the, the the story part of this, isn't it? This is the part where yeah. we start to see kind of some big picture stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And we know that this is Gandalf, yeah. right? Yeah. He's on Weathertop. He's fighting the riders. Right. And I think that gives us a chance now to to go back to that Marquette manuscript Absolutely. we've been looking at. Absolutely. I think uh, so. Hammond and Skull share with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that'll give us a little bit more insight into the fight Gandalf is having. Yeah. Tolkien tells us that the four riders who'd been sent ahead earlier gathered near Amonsul, that's Weathertop, of course, on October 2nd. And I'm quoting Tolkien here, one remains while three go on eastwards on or near road. Hmm. And the next day, according to the manuscript, on October 3rd, Gandalf reaches Weathertop, but as Tolkien says, quote, does not overtake the Witch King and other four riders, for they become aware of his approach as he overtakes them on Shadowfax. Better than Narathal, I think we just decided. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and withdraw into hiding beside the road. They close in behind. The Witch King is both pleased and puzzled. For a while, he had been in great fear, thinking that by some means Gandalf had got possession of the ring and was now the bearer. But as Gandalf passes, he is aware that Gandalf has not got the ring. What is he pursuing? He himself must be after the escaping bearer, and it must therefore somehow have gone on far ahead. But Gandalf is a great power and enemy. He must be dealt with. And yet that needs great force. And I'll just go ahead and summarize the rest here. The, the ring rates end up following Gandalf to Weathertop. Right. The Witch King figures it must be a meeting place of some sort. And they attack. Yeah. Now, at this point, there are six of them. There's the Witch King and the four that were with him, plus the one wraith that had remained on Weathertop. Uh-huh. And we know a little bit about the attack because, well, You've got something on that, right, Alan? Indeed, I do. Uh, Gandalf at the council had something to say. I galloped to Weathertop like a gale, and I reached it before sundown on my second day from Bree, and they were there before me. They drew away from me, for they felt the coming of my anger, and they dared not face it while the sun was in the sky. But they closed round at night, and I was besieged on the hilltop in the old ring of Amonsul. I was hard put to it indeed. Such light and flame cannot have been seen on Weathertop since the war beacons of old. Indeed. And, and indeed, yeah, yeah the, the light and flame were visible for a long way long because distance. that's exactly what we're seeing here, flashing light. That is right. Uh, what is it? Like lightning that leaps up from the hilltops. What a phrase. Mm-hmm. And to imagine Aragorn standing, kind of being backlit by that, that lightning, by that light and flame. Uh, as, Ooh, as that's Frodo a cool tries shot. to yeah. drift off to sleep. You know, a camera down low, Frodo's perspective from the ground, looking up uh, towards the hilltop with Aragorn standing there. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Powerful moment. And yet still, I think I hear the Nikobreakers now, Sean. So it's probably time for us to make <laughs> camp and wrap up the chapter discussion for the week. Uh, so, folks, be sure to come back next week when Sam auditions for Britain's Got Talent or American Idol, depending on your side of the pond, there you go. in the second part of Chapter 11, A Knife in the Dark.
You will not want to miss that. No. But before we reach into Barlaman's bag, we want to take just a minute to remind you about the fellowship of the podcast. As you know by now, our Discord server has been up and running for yeah. a bit now. I think actually for three months yeah, now. Yeah. Our patrons have been able to listen to our goofs and our gaffes and our edits and our outtakes. Not to mention, of course, getting a sneak peek at an episode weeks before everybody else. That is right. But in order to keep that deep humiliation amongst good friends, the server is limited. And it is deep, folks. Oh, it, it is. is very deep. It is. I almost am ashamed to show my face on Facebook anymore after the, the morning after. <laughs> oh, it's not that bad. It's, it is not that bad. <laughs> well, still, uh, to make it a little bit more manageable, the server is limited to patrons at the Gift of Gondor level or higher. So if you want to listen in live during an episode recording, then be sure to check out patreon.com slash prancingponypod where you can also get access to other exclusive content, as well as a little bit of PPP swag. And check out our next goal, which we're almost certain to have reached it by the time this airs, of setting up a monthly live hangout with us on Discord. Really looking forward to that. That's going to be a lot of yeah, fun. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. I agree. And if you're looking for a new Tolkien book in the meantime, check out the official library pages at our website, theprancingponypodcast.com, where we've put together a set of links for our listeners to all the books we've ever mentioned on the show, Tolkien or otherwise. And if you wouldn't mind posting a review on iTunes, we'd be grateful for that. That increases our visibility, which means more new listeners, more excellent questions for Barlamin, mm -hmm. more discussion on social media, and we have had a lot of that lately. Yes, we have. And a more vibrant Tolkien community. Yes, we have. Uh, and speaking of social media, it's really helpful to us if you share us there. Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, wherever there are Tolkien fans, just let them know about us. Mm -hmm. Now, with all that done, it's time to see what old Barlamin has in the mailbag for us tonight. Sean? Okay, well, I will start with Ian G. in my hometown of New Orleans, who wrote to us a few months ago with this one. Gandalf tells Frodo, A ring of power looks after itself, Frodo. It may slip off treacherously, but its keeper never abandons it. At most, he plays with the idea of handing it on to someone else's care, and that only at an early stage, when it first begins to grip. But as far as I know, Bilbo alone in history has ever gone beyond playing, and really done it. Ian says he's talking generally of rings of power there, which presumably would include the three, the seven, the nine, and obviously the one. But obviously we know that description does not apply to the three. Círdan willingly gave Gandalf Narya, one of the three, and Gil-galad obviously had at least Vilya, though Ian says I can't remember now if he passed it on to Elrond willingly or if Elrond took it up after Gil-galad's death. But we at least know that Círdan gave Gandalf a ring of power willingly. Now on to Ian's question. He says, do you think Tolkien either, one, hadn't written the backstory of Narya yet, and therefore didn't yet know that he would have Círdan giving Gandalf the ring? Two, that Gandalf is being a bit hyperbolic here, and also just simply being secretive about his having received Narya? Or three, maybe the three elven rings are immune from this ring of power characteristic, since they were never made with Sauron's help. It seems like the three do not slip off treacherously, and that their keepers don't have problems giving them away. Ian adds in closing that the third option, that the three are just not as hard to give away because they don't have this characteristic, he says that makes the most sense to him. And if we don't agree, then how do we account for Celebrimbor willingly giving the three away? <laughs> and I love this. He says, after all, he is, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says basically that after all, he is Curufin's son and Feanor's grandson. Generosity wasn't exactly a family trait. Ah, no, it wasn't. <laughs> Though I, I believe he uh, strongly disowned his father. I don't remember, though, where that's he located. Did, yeah. I'd have to, have to dig he that did, out. He did, yeah. 
I did like the idea that Gandalf's simply being hyperbolic because Gandalf's never hyperbolic, right? I mean, he never says anything that's an never exaggeration. No. I will roast Barlamin for yeah, not delivering this letter exactly. on time. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, I can't argue with that. I think, Ian, that I speak for both of us when I say that that third option does seem to be the right answer. The, the three rings. Yeah, I think so. They just don't seem to be as difficult to give away as the other 17, uh, despite Gandalf's generalization when he speaks to Frodo. As Ian said, Círdan willingly gave Narya to Gandalf when he arrived in Middle-earth. We read in Atrapata, I haven't gotten to say that in a long time, that's of the Rings of Power in the Third Age, we read this. At the first, that ring had been entrusted to Círdan, Lord of the Havens, but he had surrendered it to Mithrandir, for he knew whence he came and whither at last he would return. Take now this ring, he said, for thy labors and thy cares will be heavy, but in all it will support thee and defend thee from weariness. For this is the ring of fire, and herewith, maybe, thou shalt rekindle hearts to the valor of old in a world that grows chill. But as for me, my heart is with the sea, and I will dwell by the gray shores, guarding the havens until the last ship sails. Then I shall await thee. There you go. That's this is the ring of fire. The ring of fire. The <laughs> ring of fire. <laughs> I'm sorry. You I just have to. couldn't resist. I have could to. You? No. I fell a lot of people don't know this. Burning ring of fire. Yeah. Sorry. Kierdan always wears black. There he does. A lot of people don't know yeah. that. Kierdan is cinder in for cash, actually. <laughs> and boats at the Grey Havens mm -hmm. built one piece at a time. <laughs> and it doesn't cost him a dime. Oh, man. Kierdan's previous name? Well, he was once a boy named Sue. <laughs> We could do this. We could. We, we should Probably not though. much longer because. Yeah. More proof, by the way, that just because you can doesn't mean you should. Anyway. Right. In case you needed that. So, evidence. yeah. Pre pretty clear there that Círdan obviously very willingly gave yeah. the ring away. Yeah. Now, going back to Elrond and Vilya and how he got that, Otrapata does say that Elrond ended up with Vilya, of course. Right, uh, right. And it, But it is not all that clear in that section of the Silmarillion, whether he got it upon Gilgalad's death or whether Gilgalad gave it to him before his death. Right. So, Ian, don't be too hard on yourself for forgetting that. Right. It's actually in Unfinished Tales, the history of Galadriel and Celeborn, that it says that Gilgalad gave Vilya the Blue Ring to Elrond and appointed him to be his vice-regent in Eriador. Oh, yeah. And this was long before his death. Right. In fact, it was immediately after Sauron's forces were cleared out of Eriador, which was Second Age 1701. Mm -hmm. So yes, Ian, Gil-galad also gave up one of the three rings willingly. In fact, Gil-galad originally gave the red ring to Círdan in the first That's place, right. too. That's right. Celebrimbor actually was following Galadriel's advice by giving both Vilya and Narya to Gil-galad. And according to one marginal note in the drafts of the section, Tolkien actually did kind of play around with the idea of having Gil-galad keep Narya until much later, until he set out for the War of the Last mm -hmm. Alliance. But mm -hmm. That's not what he went with in most versions of the story. In most versions, Gilgala just passed the red ring, basically got it from Celebrimbor, uh -huh. and then immediately gave it to Círdan. So that would still be in that early phase when the ring hadn't really gotten a hold of him, if the ring had that power. If but, it did, but it seems like this was totally willing, yeah. Yeah, again, again, we're saying it didn't, but I, I just want to make that really clear, that he did sure. pass on both of those rings at yeah. one point. Yeah, which is pretty amazing, give up two rings of power. Yeah, absolutely. And willingly, in any case, no yeah. matter when he gave it away, he did give it away willingly. That's true. So it seems that the three rings just don't have the same kind of hold over their wearers that the other rings of power do in that they are not given yep. up willingly. 
Now, this yep. isn't the first time, though, that we've seen that the three rings have a different set of characteristics than the other rings which Sauron had a hand in making. Back in episode 104, we discussed how the three rings didn't confer invisibility. Now, Tolkien discussed this in letter 131 to Milton Waldman. <laughs> Speaking of the rings in general, he said, They had other powers more directly derived from Sauron, such as rendering invisible the material body and making things of the invisible world visible. The next paragraph adds, The elves of Eregion made three supremely beautiful and powerful rings, almost solely of their own imagination and directed to the preservation of beauty. They did not confer invisibility. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, Tolkien doesn't specifically address the possessive hold that the rings of power have on their wearers, but it seems pretty reasonable to conclude that that was one of kind of the Sauron-derived powers, if you will, like invisibility, that was specific to the yeah. rings that he had a hand in making. So I think it's safe to conclude that the elven rings would not have that effect. It seems that way, especially when we weigh the evidence of Gilgalad willingly giving up not one, but two of the three elven rings. I, I, I do agree. Yeah. I think... Ian's option number three seems to be the correct one. Uh, the Elven Rings just don't have this power over yeah. their wearers. Gandalf may be brushing over the details a little bit in the shadow of the past, sure. but it, it doesn't seem like that applies to the Elven Rings. No. Well, moving on, uh, I think we've got time for one more, don't we, Alan? What else do we have? Well, sure. I mean, after we tell Ian that I'll take what's behind door number three, since that was <laughs> the list of options anyway. <laughs> what, what was that show? Let's make a deal, what was the prize right? For that? right? Let's make a deal. Monty yeah. Hall. Yeah. Boy, and I wow. bet if I watched an episode of that, I would have seen an ad for Cal Worthington. <laughs> <laughs> Full circle. Full circle. So what else do well we have, Sean? We have uh, a listener by the nickname of Tarkalan writing to us asking, did Frodo use the ring in the Shire? There are a couple of reasons to believe he did. One is in Book 1, Chapter 10, Strider. The other is in Book 2, Chapter 7, The Mirror of Galadriel. And of course, they don't quote either one. <laughs> so we get to dig. Nope. No, leaving us with a little bit of a scavenger hunt, yeah. which, uh, which I love, or a riddle. Yeah, of some sort. a riddle, yes. So so thank you, Tarkalan. I think I found the two passages that Tarkalan's hinting at that suggest Frodo did use the ring at some point. Let's, let's see how yeah. I'm doing here. Okay. In book one, chapter 10, and we read this last week, Gandalf says in the first of three postscripts in his letter to Frodo, he says, do not use it again. Not for any reason, whatever. Mm, Notice he says again, again. Yeah. And then in book two, chapter seven, Galadriel says to Frodo, only thrice have you set the ring upon your fingers since you knew what you possessed. Mm. Well, we know the three times that Galadriel is speaking of uh, Tom Bombadil's house at the Prancing Pony just recently. And we'll see this in a couple of weeks at Weathertop. So right. those are the three times that he's used it since he knew what he possessed, which does imply that perhaps he used it before he knew what he possessed. Mm -hmm. uh, Gandalf's again also implies that he used it before Gandalf wrote that letter, which he wrote on Mid-Year's Day. Yeah, yeah. So although I've never put all the pieces together before now, I think Tarkalan may be right. Yeah. I think Frodo may have used the ring during the 17 years that he had the ring between Book 1, Chapter 1 and Book 1, Chapter 2. Yeah. And that, that makes a certain kind of sense, right? I mean, oh, he yeah. didn't know it was the one ring of Sauron until Gandalf explained it to him in, in the Shadow of the Past, which is chapter two. I mean, for all he knew before that, it was just Bilbo's handy-dandy magic invisibility ring. Exactly, you know? yeah. Why wouldn't he use it the same way Bilbo used to use it, as Frodo would have known well in, in many mm -hmm. years before that? Yeah. 
Uh, in fact, there are many reasons in chapter one to believe that Frodo may have been planning to use it. Mm. Immediately after Bilbo's party, when Gandalf tells Frodo that Bilbo has left him the ring, Frodo says, it may be useful. And Gandalf says, mm. I should not make use of it if I were you. Well, that's more what you'd call a guideline than an actual rule. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, it is. I he didn't say, don't, don't you dare it. use that thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then at the end of that same chapter, Frodo says he nearly tried on Bilbo's mm. ring to escape Lobelia. Yeah. And Gandalf yeah. says, don't do that. But he never expressly forbids him. In fact, That's true. he says on the next page, he says, no need to worry. But if you take my advice, you will use it very seldom oh. or not at all. <laughs> at least I beg you not to use it in any way that will cause talk or arouse suspicion. You know, that is a pretty squishy piece of advice, let's be frank. I mean, <laughs> it, really, it really is. It is not, don't you dare use this ring. Yeah. It, your life may depend on this it. Is, this is like all gray area right here. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah. the only thing that is forbidden, and it's not even forbidden, it's just Gandalf begs him not to use it in a yeah. way that will cause suspicion. <laughs> it's like footnotes upon footnotes. Isn't like, it? Yeah. If you take my advice, you won't use it, or you won't use it much, and don't use it in a way that'll arouse suspicion. At least, please, you know, it's so, please, please, pretty please, with sugar so, right. on top. It's, the it's physical so appearance of the please makes no difference. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh goodness. It's so qualified. It really is. And it really and, is. And that makes sense because Gandalf didn't know for sure what no, it was. No, I mean either. he, had he his didn't want to alarm of course, Frodo. But uh, I mean yeah. he knew it was a ring of power, but. I don't, yeah. you know, I don't think he knew. Well, he certainly didn't know. He doesn't want know, to alarm but, Frodo. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, I think while we can't prove anything, we know Frodo had a willingness to use the ring before he knew what it was. And, hey, I yeah. can't blame him with the Sackville Bagginses around. <laughs> no, no. Gandalf didn't strongly warn him against it at first. So, yeah, I'd say signs point to he probably did mm -hmm. use the ring during those 17 years. Yeah. <laughs> and what's interesting is Gandalf and Galadriel knew it. Well, you know, as ring bearers themselves, it's not entirely surprising that they would have had some knowledge of Frodo's usage of the One Ring, some awareness yeah, of it. Certainly, yeah. Well, folks, that wraps it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony Podcast. Some great questions tonight, though, huh? Yeah, very cool. Thank you, uh, both Ian and Tarkline. Yeah. Now, folks, please be sure to join us again next week when Strider firmly reminds us that jokes about wraiths are inappropriate. Do not speak of such things. <laughs> well, folks, thanks again for listening, and thank you for making our common room on Facebook such a fun place to spend time. We want all of you to be a part of this conversation, and it doesn't stop when the episode ends. You can see the comments, questions, corrections, and more on Facebook at the Prancing Pony Podcast, on Twitter at Prancing Pony Pod, and on Instagram at Prancing Pony Pod. And a very special thank you to our patrons at the Kirdan's Contribution Tier, Demay in Alaska, James in Virginia, Tamson in Minnesota, Emily in Texas, and Chad in Texas. Thank you all very much. Make sure you don't miss any episodes of the Prancing Pony Podcast. Subscribe to the show through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. One last thing as always, don't forget to send your thoughts, comments, and most of all, your translations of ancient elvish lays to Barlamin at theprancingponypodcast.com. That's ancient elvish lays, not ancient Elvis lays, just to be clear. Uh, and we will try to get them <laughs> into our next yeah, show. Yeah, we don't want the mailbox filling up with translations of Elvis. Love me tender. It's, yeah, no. Love me true. Thank you very much. Thank you. I mean, if that's your thing, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, don't. We, yeah. No, don't need that. So, however long we've had, and tonight, I promise you folks, with the edits that we've had, I have no clue how long it is, <laughs> but it is still far too short a time to spend among such excellent and admirable listeners. But until next time. Farewell, friends. <laughs>